0: If you imagine that you were just walking down the street to go to the park, if suddenly you noticed that someone was following you and they had a little notepad and they were t- noting down everything you, you did, you know, are you walking fast or are you walking slowly? Um, who are you meeting? Uh, do you look happy? Do you look nervous? Did you stop to go into a shop? Um, you know, all of these things, if someone was jotting that down, you'd be really, really freaked out.
1: Welcome to AI for You, a podcast hosted by AI for Anyone, a nonprofit dedicated to helping anyone learn about artificial intelligence. How can we play a part in shaping our future with AI? AI. AI for You will dive into its impact in our communities, where AI stands today, and most importantly, will equip you with the tools and understanding to think about your relationship with AI. I'm your host, Mac McMahon, and today I will be joined by our two producers, Adam Lindquist hello, and Anika Udine. Hi. And if you haven't listened to our first episode on Facial Recognition series from May 27th, please check it out for an introduction to Facial recognition how it works and how it's being used, especially by law enforcement and governments. Here's a quick recap.
0: The most commonly used method is neural network-based systems. So I think that's what Clearview AI uses who've been in the news a bit recently. The exact math switch happens in each neuron is kind of tweaked by the algorithm that's driving the neural network. And this is done based on feedback, like how humans work. So, you know, in real life, if you get something wrong and someone corrects you, you then kind of adjust your behavior so that you can be more correct in the future. And it's the same for neural networks.
2: I have um, had where a guy wouldn't, couldn't identify himself and it turned out to be a missing person from another state. The technology works well on deceased people. The first 48 hours is very important in an investigation. Especially when it comes to a homicide
3: investigation. And today we're talking about the harm that facial recognition and its applications can cause. This episode, by no means, will be able to capture all that facial recognition has done, but hopefully, we'll be able to get you thinking about the repercussions facial recognition has on
0: justice.
1: So, so who was that that we heard back in the beginning? That
3: was
0: Ella Jakubowska, and I work at European Digital Rights, or EDRI for short.
2: And Ella is one of the many critics of facial recognition. And so critics of facial recognition often point to two major problems. First, there are many instances of bias in facial recognition, where the tech misidentifies or simply doesn't work correctly on a certain group of people, often black or brown people, which can lead to arresting or prosecuting the wrong people. Secondly, Critics are worried about the misapplication of this technology. So when the tech becomes good enough that even misidentifications are very small, there is still a growing worry about how mass surveillance harms privacy, individual freedoms, and even political dissent.
1: And I think that that's a pretty fair worry, right? So I think, uh, so let's start uh, with bias in tech. Let's look there first. Can you tell us a little bit more
2: about that? Sure. So bias in technology, it seems counterintuitive. How can something based just on science and numbers, have a human bias in it. But research actually shows that this is true.
3: And that research has been led by many Black women scholars, including Ruha Benjamin, Joy Bulamini, Sophia Noble, and I'm a little bit of a fangirl, but all of them are really awesome. You should read their books and stay tuned to them, but also look into the many other women of color and technologists that are at the intersection of this work. If we look at Professor Benjamin's book, Race After Technology, she talks about what she calls the new gym code. She defines this as, quote, the employment of new technologies that reflect and reproduce existing inequities, but that are promoted and perceived as more objective and progressive than the discriminatory systems of a previous era. So breaking that down... The human biases that we already have because of systemic inequalities, those are all encoded into the technology we use every single day.
1: And so what does that look like?
3: One of the people I spoke with was Jameson Spivak, associate from the Georgetown Center for Privacy and Technology, whose research specializes in law enforcement use of facial recognition.
4: There are three public cases of misidentification, notably all black men. Um, But if I had to guess, I would say there's probably more that we just haven't come to light yet.
2: So those three black men, their names were Robert Williams, Michael Oliver, both from Detroit, and Najir Parks from New Jersey. And this is misidentification with these facial recognition programs. And just like the human brain, the neural networks that recognize faces can make mistakes too. And it seems like the mistakes tend to have a racial bias. But how do we know that? So here's Joy Bulamini talking about that. She's in a 2019 interview on PBS.
5: I decided to go ahead and test these systems, But I ran into a major issue, which was that the existing benchmarks, the data sets of faces that are used to judge how well these systems work, are not very representative. So I started looking at various benchmarks that have been used as the gold standard to say, how well are we doing in the facial analysis space? And one of the early gold standard benchmarks turned out to be 77% male and 83% white individuals. Then I looked at a benchmark coming from the National Institute for Standards and Technology. It's a government agency that's tasked with making benchmarks for this type of technology. And I looked at their benchmark. A slight improvement, 75% male and 80% lighter skin. So I realized if we have these pale male data sets, we're not actually going to have a good sense of performance. And so I made a new data set, one that was more inclusive called the Pilot Parliaments Benchmark. So I made this benchmark because we currently had these pale male benchmarks, right? And with this new benchmark, this is where it started to get interesting. I tested systems from IBM, from Microsoft, and from Face Plus Plus, a leading billion-dollar tech company in China that's actually used by the Chinese government. So they have access to a large store of Chinese faces. And I wanted to see, okay, how accurate are these systems? So for lighter-skinned males, error rates were no more than 1% for guessing the gender of an, um, a face in that benchmark. When you go to lighter-skinned females, no more than 7%. When you go to darker-skinned males, you get around 12%. And when you go to faces like mine, darker-skinned females, you're at around 34 35% error rates in aggregate. If you disaggregate that and you look at the darkest-skinned females, the highly melanated like myself, you actually had error rates as high as 47% in commercially sold products. Which for me was really surprising because we were doing gender in a way that it was reduced to a binary. So you have a 50-50 shot of getting it right by just guessing. And so I sent the results to the companies to see what their response would be. And it actually turned out to be something many people were overlooking. So after the study came out, companies have released new systems showing some marked improvement.
3: So the data sets that Joy is talking about are the data sets that the National Institute of Standards and Technology, or NIST, uses to see if the technology has a bias. These are what I'd call testing data sets. And she shows that there is bias in those testing sets of data, But there are other sets of data that are involved in these facial recognition technologies, some of which we learned in the last episode. One is what I'd call a training data set. Those sets of data are what the technology itself learns from. And there's also comparison data sets. And those sets of data are what the technology uses to actually match faces. Both of these comparison data sets and training data sets can also have bias. And when we talked to Jameson Spyback, here's what we found out.
4: One, I would distinguish between training data set and the data set that the faces are compared to. So the the, the face recognition algorithm, when they're building it, they're building it on, on training data and they, they'll pull it from, they'll, uh, they'll use different data sets. And it, it used to be that most of the training data that was used was, was older white men. That has since changed or it's starting to change for a lot of companies. So the, the training data is starting to be more reflective of the demographic makeup of the country. But that's different than the database of faces that the actual searches are run against. So what Clearview AI does is it's the comparison database that is made up of these millions of faces. Um, I'm not sure what their training data is based on. Clearview has not submitted their algorithm to testing from the National Institute of Standards and Technology, which is kind of the gold standard for testing face recognition systems. And most commercial vendors have submitted to NIST. Um, Clearview AI has not. Um, So we don't exactly know what the the accuracy or the uh, bias is of, of them. That's
3: interesting because he calls the standards, the NIST stuff, the gold standard. But Joy literally just said it wasn't.
1: Right. And so in the industry, somehow NIST is still considered to be a gold standard when it's already been proven that it in and of itself is biased. And so now we need to rewrite the rules Right of, of how we define what is biased, what is the gold standard, because um, we've, you know, we've proven that that's not something we can rely on.
2: Yeah, it, well, and also thinking about did NIST update their standards since right. that was happening four or five years ago when uh, Joy was talking about it. So, right, 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 right. You know, you know, basically, has, has it like kind of been fixed by these people bringing it to light and has NIST updated their stuff? And I guess we don't know. So
1: don't it looks know. like there was a, a NIST study in 2019, that uh, NIST study evaluates effects on race, a, race, age, sex on face, re- face recognition software.
2: Yeah, um, okay, that makes sense. So that was sense. 2019. So, that was, so that's, that's, that's just that's when Joy was had had her interview that, that we played. So it makes okay. sense. I I feel like that was right around the tipping point where yeah, all this stuff came that that to light. Sense. And then in the last two years, then we've got like Clearview, which mm-hmm. you know claims to like not have you know to not have that problem. Whether it does or not, I don't, we don't know. And that's the that's the thing. But Jameson also had some other thoughts on how bias can creep in.
4: There there are people, and you could make the argument that just using face recognition on arrest photos is sort of perpetuating the racial inequalities from the criminal legal system more broadly, because since Black, Brown, low-income communities are more heavily policed, they will be overrepresented in arrest databases. So one could make the argument that using face recognition only on arrest photos is perpetuating that bias. Regardless of how accurate the technology is, there is still a human involved and the human has their own bias, and that is still a part of the equation. Face recognition is a biometric. It, It deals with analyzing features of our body to identify us. Another type of biometric is a fingerprint, but fingerprinting is treated as a forensic piece of evidence, and there's a lot of regulation about it. Face recognition, is also a biometric, but whether because it's new or for whatever reason, it's not treated the same way. E- pretty much anyone within these agencies can run a face recognition search and say, oh, that, that kind of looks like him.
1: There's an interesting balance between not training AI on diverse enough data sets and AI getting too much data. And if we look at how this tech has improved, even just over the last five years, you know, and based on some of the recent claims by Clearview, What if some of the examples about bias are just the growing pains of a new technology and that the real worry is what happens next when AI gets too good?
3: Yeah. So there definitely will come a time when the error rate in the technology becomes so negligible across race, across sex, across all of these different physical identifying factors that the worry about bias in the technology actually gets transferred to worry about bias in the people using the technology.
1: We learned last week a bit about how different China and the West are in their use of facial recognition technology, with the examples of China using it in such mundane spaces as, you know, jaywalking and the the paper towel dispensers. Uh, Although the West seems to be in a different place, what are the critics of this technology most worried about in the West?
2: Right. Well, that's why we reached out to Ella, who we heard at the beginning from European Digital Rights. And uh, here's some of what she had to say.
0: Now what we're seeing is through these, what we call biometric mass surveillance practices, law enforcement officials, uh, local authorities like councils, uh, school authorities, and private companies like supermarket owners are all doing just what I've described, this process of following people wherever they go and, and... taking down sensitive information about them. We've seen in Italy just uh, a couple of years ago, and in in the last couple of years it's been repeated as well, that these systems have been rolled out uh, in parks, in parts of Italy, claiming to detect if people are loitering. It was uh, particularly worrying because it was targeted against areas where We know that uh, people who were uh, on the move, so people seeking asylum or migrants, were being forced to sleep rough because they'd they'd been denied um, an asylum status. So it it was particularly singling out and criminalizing people who were in a very vulnerable position and who um, really were in need of of state help um, and instead were being criminalized through this really inhumane technology. Um, in the Netherlands, we've seen supermarkets using, trying to use facial recognition to scan all customers coming in and to try and say who is potentially a shoplifter. It's simply enough for a shop security guard to say that they think a person looks suspicious. They think somebody might have been shoplifting. And on that basis, the system would identify a person going into thousands of other shops in the country and would flag them to security to deny them entry simply because a security guard somewhere Else thought without any involvement from you know a judicial system that this person seems suspicious.
3: Try to identify who might be a sharp most it's absurd thing crazy. I've ever heard. Crazy, yeah,
1: yeah. It, well, and it's like so. I worked as like a front end manager or like an assistant manager of a grocery store back when I was in college, and like. It's mostly kids, like stupid, you know, 14-year-old, 16-year-old kids. And like now suddenly they can't go into other supermarkets when they're, you know, not stupid kids anymore. Yeah. And who looks suspicious? Like that's that's the most suspicious I've ever heard.
3: Doesn't that just contribute to more inequality?
1: Yeah. Right. Like now that person might have to go, you know, 10, 20, 30 miles to a grocery store that doesn't use that facial recognition tech. Or suddenly, you know, they have to go to a a smaller mom-and-pop shop that has higher prices.
0: If you are a person with a disability and you already face social stigma, um, and these technologies could be used in ways that are harmful for you. Um, So, for example, if you have a tick or if you are autistic and you therefore don't display emotions um, in a way that a system might be programmed to expect a quote unquote normal person would act, you could be inconvenienced, you could be marked out as suspicious, you could face um, more police interventions.
1: I, I think it's clear that many of these uses seem like a violation of some in some sense of privacy or freedom, you know, that we expect in the West. Uh, but These do seem like they may be some extreme examples. You know, last week we talked to a police officer in Alabama who told us that, you know, all the different ways he uses Clearview in his work, from identifying suspects in videos to identifying the ID of a victim of a crime or a person who might not be able to ID themselves even.
2: Right. I asked Ella kind of that same question. What's her response to some of these more everyday uses that cops uh, might use it for. And, and here's here's what she said.
0: The, you know, facial recognition is not the only way for police work to be done. Um, there are other ways to do it that don't then threaten the rights and invade the privacy of every single person. Um, and so I think it's really important that we we look at and we invest in those other methods, um, including things that that we know are actually much more effective at reducing crime compared to surveillance. So things like Social provisions, uh, education, measures to tackle inequalities are going to actually be much more effective in the long term at reducing crime than facial recognition systems in public that that police everyone.
2: And she also brings up a broader point about the wide scale use of this tracking technology, that it not only harms individuals, uh, but it can harm society as a whole
0: people can be disincentivized from going to protests for example where where whistleblowers and people trying to expose corruption um, could be disincentivized from doing that because we all lose our anonymity as a result of these systems. So things like our ability to have a free press, to hold power to account, um, to expose corruption can then be really, really challenged. There's a lot of really wide societal level harms that we're seeing as well. So. There's a lot of evidence starting to come out, research that shows that when people know they're being watched all the time, they change their behavior, they self-censor, and they feel less comfortable being able to live their lives how they choose. So that affects all of us. um, That can make all of us feel less safe.
3: And so this concept of mass biometric surveillance, about being watched all the time, is actually a reality for a lot of people in China. Here's a story from Darren Beiler, an anthropologist that specializes in the Uyghur Muslim crisis in China. That's the ongoing humanitarian crisis where the Chinese government is profiling Uyghur Muslims, detaining them, and forcing them into internment camps. We'd encourage all of our listeners to look into what's happening there. But here's Darren.
6: One of my interviewees who I spoke to about this was one of the, she was a former detainee and then was released, Um, and she was unusual because she's a Hui person, which is a Chinese Muslim person that can pass as Han, so she's not a Turkic Muslim like Uyghurs or Kazakhs, Um, and she speaks Chinese as her first language. and, like, she's not actually very religious uh, in terms of, like, her the piousness of her practice, you know, and how she appears. She doesn't even keep halal standards necessarily. Um, But she was detained because she'd used a VPN uh, to access her homework um, back in the U.S. where she was a international student. After she was released from the camp, she was walking one day, going shopping, and listening to something on earbuds. So she didn't even know that the police were following her until they tapped her on the shoulder and said, Hey, you have to come with us. And then when she went inside the, the station, which is a kind of surveillance hub, uh, she saw her picture on the screen on the wall with a square around it, um, that she, that had, she had been detected as being out of her zone, as, as being someone on this watch list. Um, so they, they just gave her a warning. They said, you have to go back to your neighborhood and let her go. But she also realized that like she did this too often. It would be a sign of her not being compliant and it could potentially result in her being detained again. So she said after this, after that, and a few other incidents similar to that, um, that she just started to stay at home um, and not travel at all until she was eventually allowed to get her passport. And now she's she's back in the U.S., which is how I was able to talk to her.
2: Yeah, that, I mean, some some of that reminds me of uh, Ella's quote of walking down the street and you're being followed. <laughs>
1: right, and, and you know, she she didn't even know what she was kind of like being watched for, so to speak. You know, not only did she not know that there was somebody figuratively over her shoulder watching her every move, but she didn't know what their, you know, what their definition of compliant might be exactly. And so that's an incredibly unnerving thing to live with, you know, every second of the day, not knowing, uh, you know, if you're playing by the rules, so to speak, or if you're, stepping out of line, you know, and you don't even know what the, what the punishment's going to be either. So I if, if feel like that would change everything you do.
3: Um, I'm just going back to like the, Hey, you have to come with us. I can't imagine like being approached alone, like on your way back, listening to music, being fully relaxed, not even knowing that they were following you. And then like, still that's a very scary situation to be in.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I always in in class when I had a teacher over my shoulder, I was definitely a lot more nervous taking a test, right? Like even if I had no intention of cheating or anything like that, you know, the idea that somebody's watching you just adds, you know, pressure to, to act a certain way or to, you know, answer a certain way. And so I think that that's, you know, that's inherently something that's going to affect how we do everything in life if we are always being watched.
6: The tools that the Chinese state is using in northwest China um, are actually pretty similar to the tools that are available in most places in the world. The, the main difference is that they're used with a lot greater density and at a much different scale. Um, so, you know, most of us, when we've gone, we go through a border checkpoint going through customs, we have our face scanned, our ID checked, the image on our ID is matched to our face. And that seems perfectly normal. What's happening in Northwest China is a similar system, but these border checkpoints are every, you know, several hundred meters or uh, at every jurisdictional boundary. So so when you go into a a shopping mall, when you go into a bank, you're going to have your face scanned and matched to your ID. So it just means that the border logics are much more intensified. And so they're starting to track people's movements to a much greater degree. Beyond the face recognition stuff, which is what I'm talking about here with checkpoints, are digital forensics tools that are used to scan people's devices, their phones mostly, to see what they've been up to over the last several years, last couple of weeks, and to map their social network and also to track their movements. So the GPS on someone's phone is also being used to track movement. Um, all of this means that the state has a lot of really intimate details about each individual that's being watched. Um, and in the Uyghur region, that means basically everyone, but Muslims in particular. Uh, there's 15 million Muslims total in the region, and many of them are on some form of a watch list, which means that... They're tracked to a greater extent than the non-Muslim population. You
1: know, it seems like this is especially dangerous for for people who are truly the minorities, right? You know, people who are already being marginalized. This seems like it just enhances a government or a state's ability to marginalize people who are in in the minority.
3: Going back to like the idea of teacher versus student, there's like clear power structure there. So that also adds to it because you're not just like doing Whatever task you do, you're like performing it for someone.
6: The primary concern is that there's automated forms of racialization that are happening and that this one particular group of people or groups of people are being disproportionately targeted by these systems, that they have no recourse to justice, no no form of due process that will protect them. When I say an automated form of racialization, what I'm talking about is the way that these systems that are set up in these automated cases, uh, are set up to track the phenotypes of the person's face. So they're looking for the shape of the person's eyes, their nose, then it's, the algorithm is, is going to present us and of this person being a Uyghur or, or not Uyghur. You know, there's different categories. Uyghur, there's Han, there's like foreign as well, which is like white, I think. But, but what they're looking for are Uyghurs. And in some cases, they also have a Tibetan alarm. Um, and so the police are supposed to be alerted if it, if the system detects a Uyghur, and the police will come out and check the person. That's what I mean when I say there's an automated kind of racialization where the phenotypes of the person's face, the, the shape of their face itself, is is becomes a kind of passport or becomes something that's assessed by the police and by these camera systems.
1: So the big question here is what exactly is a breach of privacy? You know, how, how much data do we want the government to know about us? And data is already such a widely debated topic, you know, we could have a whole other series dedicated to that alone, you know, honestly, a whole channel, probably. But to tie it back to something that we engage with on a daily basis, social media, Uh, these big tech companies are tracking a lot of data on us, you know, whether it's who we are with, what we like, what we dislike, where we are, when we do things, and so, so much more. How does the data that's being collected differ from what's happening in China?
6: Well, it's not that different from a big tech company Um, in some ways because Facebook or Twitter is able to track us pretty well as well. The difference is in the way civil protections are are disregarded in this context. So a right to privacy isn't something that anyone has. Uh, Everyone knows that anything they say online is basically public record. And as a Muslim person in this space, it's very clear that what you say online can be used against you as a kind of thought crime or a pre-crime. So The system is actually set up as what they call a preventative policing system. So they're trying to stop people from being radicalized or extremist, which is something that Western countries also do. Countering violent extremism is, is something that is normative um, in the way that Muslims are thought about by states. In this context though, the preventative policing is something that results in detentions. So hundreds of thousands of people, particularly young people, have been detained and put in camps uh, where they're supposed to be reeducated. That's, you know, at a different scale when it comes to tracking people and preventing them from from carrying out some sort of crime. It's not as though people are actually in the act of a crime. They're just interested in Islam or they, you know, use a VPN to access Google or they downloaded WhatsApp on their phone. Those are signs of of extremism if you're a Muslim.
3: So naturally, it seems like the way out of this whole system is just to turn away from using it. If we think about social media, people say, just stop using it. Why do you need to use it? But for the people in China, it's much harder to ask them to just turn away from using their devices. They, Especially in such a modernized world, even if they do turn away from their devices, there are so many risks associated with that. You,
6: you would think that one way to push back against the system is to just stop using a device or stop moving. <laughs> but that's also a sign of, uh, of something wrong, uh, of potential extremism. So if you have a smartphone registered to your ID, which most people do at
2: this point, you're required to carry it. So it seems like the the breach in privacy in the case of China is far more extreme than, than anything that's happening in the U.S. or Europe right now. But what does that mean about the bias in technology itself?
1: You know, with, with such large data sets, is that still even a problem?
6: I mean, in some ways, what we're talking about when we're talking about algorithmic bias is that the surveillance isn't good enough, that the surveillance should be more precise. In this case, the surveillance is much more, you know, a camera system that's set up in a mosque or in a train station that's supposed to detect people that are on a watch list as they enter that space. And what we've seen from some of the companies that are doing this work, what they're saying their capacities are at is that that maybe they have like a 30% success rate, or at least that's what they were saying in other parts of China, Uh, which means that there's a lot of false positives, people that are identified as Uyghur that aren't Uyghur. And so they're really made sort of susceptible to this very pervasive, intimate system that's scalable, that attracts all of their movement or a good deal of it.
1: Right, yeah. I mean, the AI, it acts like a magnifying glass at the end of the day, right? And so when we're trying to magnify to find the right face... You know, that's one thing and, and you know, the error, error does play a role. But then when we're using the magnifying glass to just select for one type of face, you know, it becomes really, really, really effective at being, at, you know, at, at utilizing that bias. And so, so I think that that's the real big worry. So we've heard about so many flaws in the current technologies that we use. So between the inherent biases that are in facial recognition programs the potential misuse uh, by law enforcement in our Western countries, or the blatant violation of human rights that we're hearing about in China, there is an undeniable growing need for some sort of action, or at the very least discussion, about how to balance the good and the bad. How can we make sure the police and governments use this tech in a way that we can find the child predators while still protecting the basic rights and freedoms of the most vulnerable? Is that balance even possible? For a technology that's whole purpose is to find and analyze the differences in people, can we really expect it not to be biased? Next week we'll talk about where we might find that balance, how governments and organizations around the world are approaching this very problem, and some of the more striking things we've learned about in this process. We'd love to hear from you, our listeners, how you're feeling about the use of facial recognition technology. So please send us an email with a few words about how you're feeling about it all to podcast at AI for anyone.org. So stay tuned. Thanks, Anika and Adam.
2: Thank you. Thanks, Mac.